Welcome to Season 10 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that is dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from across the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. I want to thank all of you for watching. Our first 100 episodes garnered over 20,000 organic views. I couldn't do it without you. Please share, please subscribe, and enjoy the show. Welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy, and this is going to be a great one. I am joined by Dr. Alex Belser, who is a psychedelic researcher and a licensed psychologist. For the last 20 years, he's been a leader in the psychedelic clinical community, having researched psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, and DMT. He serves as the chief clinical officer at Cybin, where he leads their psychedelic clinical therapy programs. And at Yale, Dr. Belser is investigating psychedelic treatments for OCD. He's the founder and president, founding president of Nautilus Sanctuary, the first nonprofit center for psychedelic medicine on the East Coast. Dr. Belser's research has been featured on the front pages of the New York Times and the Atlantic, the New Yorker, the Guardian, Rolling Stone magazine, and in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. Welcome to the show, Alex. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's a great opportunity to practice being both purposeful and empathic. Uh, <laughs> hopefully it. in the same breath. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, I have been looking forward to this conversation for months because I have saw, looked long and hard to speak to somebody who is an expert on psychedelics and the potential of psychedelics, not only for healing in a therapeutic context, but I think more broadly healing society uh, where we need more empathy in the world. I'm curious to know out of the gates, sort of what brought you to the research in the first place? Yeah. So when I was in college in the 90s, talking about psychedelic drugs was like very verboten, very forbidden. Uh, and I, I didn't know at the time, but, you know, psychedelic medicine actually had a heyday in the 1950s and 60s. It was a standard part of psychiatric psychologist training. There were many, many thousands of uh, uh, people who got psychedelics as part of clinical trials at leading institutions, and there are many uh, hundreds of papers published, but it all went underground um, when Nixon declared uh, the war on drugs, and the, the plug was pulled, and most of the research really went into hibernation for decades, just until recently. And when I was in school, there was a sort of underground rave scene in the 90s, MDMA dance culture. Um, I was coming out of the closet as gay. And um, I started reading some of these books from the 70s, like Stan Groff's incredible book, LSD Psychotherapy. And I, my mind was just blown by it. And in talking with people who had taken psychedelics, I could tell that the standard uh, their narrative of just saying no may not really apply to these particular medicines, especially given the history of human use um, from everyone from the Hellenic, you know, sort of forefathers of Western uh, thought like Socrates and Plato, who um, Pythagoras, whom we know used psychedelics to extant lineages in the Americas, like with uh, Maria Sabina and the Mazatec people uh, using mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms that to create visions and to help um, with a variety of different challenges. So I was intrigued and, you know, I started going to psychedelic conferences, which um, were kind of esoteric little affairs at the time back around 2000. Uh, it wasn't until I went to Albert Hoffman's birthday party, who's um, this famous chemist who synthesized LSD. He was turning 100 years old. The man had lived 
a full century. And it was a serious psychedelic conference in both German and English in uh, Basel, Switzerland, with incredible speakers. And I started to think, and I think many of us began to realize that, hey, there might be a way to actually have a renaissance or a resurgence of psychedelic research. Um, and so we got started by yeah. founding a, a team at uh, New York University to do psychedelic research, um, you know, above board, not just uh, underground work, which was really important, or recreational work, like at concerts or with friends, which I know there's was a lot and is still a lot happening. But, you know, really to see if this was something that we could study formally and even um, put on a track towards getting approved by the Food and Drug Administration, getting approved as a legal medicine, potentially for a variety of different indications. So that's that's kind of where we're at today. And that's what we've seen. It's just been, you know, it's been a rocket ride because nobody was talking about this 20 years ago. And now um, it's become a center of the field of medicine, the field of therapy. Um, and it's a, it's a really exciting time to be uh, part part of this this field. Yeah, I mean, I think of that, what is it, the little cycle of innovation where you've got the early adopters and then, or maybe like the innovators, then the early adopters, and then the critical mass. I think we're really moving very quickly into the critical mass where you do feel confident that the FDA is going to approve these uh, therapeutic uses, right? And and investment dollars are following, right? As these research centers with great legitimacy and um, and concern about the well-being of people uh, are 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 really burgeoning. You said something just before that in the early days it was verboten. I just happened to catch yesterday on Stephen Colbert, uh, Harry on his book tour, Prince Harry, talking about his experience right. with ayahuasca. I mean, so that's how mainstream it's become when you know a prince is talking about it. I I, I want to share just for context, which I haven't done publicly on this podcast before, about two years ago. Um, uh, I was telling one of my best friends that, you know, I have a now six and a half year old daughter that, uh, you know, with a, with a child in the family, it's easy for the couple to feel kind of like they, they're missing each other a little bit. And I, and I sure. missing my, my husband and she has her partner comes from the West coast where the use of psychedelics is at least in Canada, much more um more acceptable and she's like oh you must try some sassafras just so you feel connected and when you use the word verboten earlier like i grew up in a household where my family was like you don't do drugs like do drugs mm -hmm. don't come home you know type of thing yeah, and so yeah. i didn't mess around with that um and so I, I i didn't grow up with lots of drugs i mean i've tried a couple of things and then you know vomited all night so it hasn't been part of my life so i was not really really keen I was like, okay, but maybe I should do a little bit of research. And so when we finally did as a couple, the experience that I had, and I, we made the mistake as novices that we ate a, a lasagna dinner together. Our daughter was sleeping away at my father's home. And uh, and so maybe we didn't feel the full effect of this. Um, but Sassafras, I don't know what the street name is in, in the States, but it's like, I guess, the cousin to ecstasy. I guess it's MDA, is it? That's the, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, there's some empathic uh, relationship to MDMA, yeah. Right. Okay. So there, I, I, when I was doing the research, I was reading that they're called empathogens. And then having the experience, I just remember reaching out to every member of my family, my, my the family I grew up in, and each person answering the phone by luck and just sharing with them how much I love them and how much I was grateful mm -hmm. to have them in my life. And I spent the evening with my husband just like bonding over like how much love we had together. And that experience 
for me, like really got me curious. So I read Michael Pollan's book and, you know, been watching the, the Netflix ep, you know, presentations and started writing about it in my own book, talking about the potential of psychedelics in it relation to kind of expanding our capacity to empathize. So before we get into all of that, yep, okay, yep. I, that's, that's my backstory. And maybe you have your own personal experiences with psychedelics that we could kind of delve into, because I think, I think having the anecdotal history and stories are important, I think, for people who are not sure or think bad drugs, bad, you know, which is sure, yeah. the paradigm I grew up in. Okay. Um, can you please explain? So we've seen that psychedelic medicine has, is being used to treat depression and anxiety and trauma now. Could you explain how psychedelics work to bring about the changes that um, that are so promising? Well, what's interesting about your story is like when you're calling up your family and telling them how much you care and love them, what's keeping us from just being able to do that on any given Tuesday night? What is it that's blocking or pre preventing us? And it's it's obviously not an external block, like you can pick up the phone anytime or, or go and visit. There's something happening in, in our internal psychic architecture that is diff that's that's helping us, uh, preventing us from being as deeply connected to ourselves, to our bodies, to one another, both the people near and far in our lives, our, our most trusted and deep human relationships. Um, and I think that to some extent, there's been a movement in the mental health field towards seeing all these different indications, depression, anxiety, different types of obsessive compulsive behaviors, problematic substance use issues like people who can't quit smoking or people who want to reduce their drinking, uh, post-traumatic stress as having common etiology, some sort of common underlying factors. Um, and it seems like, and this is sort of a joke, which, that, that psychedelic medicine, which is the combination of a thoughtful psychotherapy with the medication, both before, during, and after, seems to help uh, reduce our symptom scores, uh, to use clinical trial sort of dorky methodology uh, across all of these different indications. And so there's a joke, which is that, well, like, well, what are psychedelics good for? They seem to, it's not like it's just a drug that treats one particular condition. It's a drug that seems to, and a practice that seems to be helpful and not just a little helpful, but with large effect sizes, helpful across a variety of conditions to the extent that the FDA has granted what they call BTD or breakthrough therapy designation now to three different programs two with psilocybin for depression and one for MDMA to treat severe trauma, severe PTSD. Uh, and the question is, how do they work? And there's so many different, this is like most, you know, this is where we can really like delve into the controversies, but there are many competing theories as to what's keeping us from being well more of the time. And it's not just necessarily to your point for, with empathy for, for, um, you know, what we consider DSM diagnoses like major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. It's also potentially, there are potentially applications for psychedelics for the betterment of well people, uh, what Bob Jesse calls the betterment of well people, which is that there might be creative applications, there might be uh, ways of connecting more with nature, uh, there might be ways of reclaiming our uh, relationship to our own, our own body and breath and mindfulness, there may be ways of um, feeling more deeply connected to um, our loved ones. And, um, you know, is it okay if I walk through a few of the, the leading yeah. sort of theories? Yeah. yeah so, 
So, you know, it really depends upon your worldview. Now, there's a whole sort of neurobiolog, there's three main classes, like there's the neurobiological mechanisms that are actually happening in the human brain. And though there's also what's happening in the therapy room itself, which is people are having profound visionary, phenomenological experiences about their story, the relationship to their self, healing and revisiting of past relational wounds or traumas or neglects. And then the third major class is what I like to call RSMEs or religious spiritual and or mystical experiences and repeatedly we've seen that when people score high on a measure of mystical experience they have a really profound sense of connectedness uh, sense of unity a transcendence of time and space that that actually correlates with symptom improvements and it's possible that these three different sort of potential mechanisms pathways of healing are acting in complementary ways meaning that you know in the brain the default mode network can shut down which is our sense of our ego our self our this sort of um it's associated with reverie and when that goes offline something else may open up that we have a different relatedness to the world and to each other um, we also know that different parts of the brain functional connectivity is um are getting connected in new ways so normally the different locations in the brain I'm pointing to my head, you know, they, they don't necessarily talk to each other that much, uh, but under the influence of psychedelics like psilocybin, the active ingredient in, in mushrooms, um, there's this massive firing across all levels of the brain. And so you have this like increased neural connectivity, which is really fascinating and seems to um, be associated with different states of consciousness, which would then translate potentially into altered traits of being in our lives. And it opens potentially a neuroplastic uh, synaptogenic, uh, synapt which means new, new synaptic connections in the brain. And we know that neurons that wire together, fire together, will wire together. So there's this idea that in the brain, um, if you intentionally want to quit drinking, this ingrained habit, this like deep wheel well that you just cannot get out of. But if you combine it with a quit date and an intention around the psychedelic medicine, that um, people are more likely to to open a critical, the psychedelics may open a critical learning window to to give up old habits and to learn that psychedelics are actually learning agents to help us learn new ways of, of being. Because, you know, as an adult, it's hard to learn new ways of being. We're kind of set in our ways, like those Tuesday nights where you would, you know, sit down and watch Netflix rather than calling a friend and having a connected, uh, empathic um, conversation. Uh, and now as a psychotherapist, I'm in sort of in the middle, like working in these trials, working with participants is so moving to me. It's, uh, you know, people often will, uh, it's not like a normal SSRI trial, SSRI trial, right? Like people are having, instead of having symptoms being suppressed, we're getting underneath the symptoms and going to root, I believe, root causes that seem to generate in the form for different people as depression or anxiety or um, obsessionality, for example. And what we see is that people say that they have a, a renewed sense of who they are in the world, that they reclaim parts of themselves that they never dealt with before, that they are able to approach and that the mind, actually what we call the inner intelligence or healing intelligence, actually brings up things that they've been avoiding, that they don't want to think about. The fact that they're in a relationship that's not actually deeply fulfilling. The fact that they're in a job that they have settled for, but they feel like they have to take, but they're actually afraid to do something else. They actually confront these things and get under them and actually sit with them and, and then feel the feelings that they've been blocking out because they're so intolerable to feel. Um, 
And then, and then lastly, there's this question of like, what universe are, are we in, right? You know, people take psychedelic medicines, whether it's in an ayahuasca retreat center or a high dose of LSD or in our, you know, psilocybin or DMT trials, they, they will have an experience where, you know, there's a sort of spiritual disconnection in our everyday lives. And so we see in our trials at NYU uh, that people report that they feel more altruistic afterwards. They have a spiritual connection, a different sense of like what constitutes the real. And they feel more altruistic. And there's some interesting data about um, how they feel more connected and interconnected to everything. So instead of feeling um, the sort of late liquid modern sense of alienation and ennui and disconnection and meaninglessness and sort of the, the sort of like um, dislocation of self in the world, they feel uh, a, an ability to reclaim a different relationship to who they are and where they are uh, as they walk through their lives. You know, as you're talking, I can't help but feel sort of so much promise and so much potential. And I think, okay, it sounds too good to be true because it seems like the applications are so far reaching, so broad. Um, what do you say to the critics who are like, okay, there's this like renaissance of psychedelics that could all go madly wrong. Like if all of us start using and abusing these drugs. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I want to say that I, the last thing I want to do is represent these medicines as some panacea or cure-all, or you take, you press the button and everything's pink and rosy. These experiences for most people, in fact, most of my research is focused on in-depth, long-term interviews, really trying to talk with all these different people in these psilocybin trials to understand what was it like for you? And about half of them experience not just, you know, wonderful experiences, but actually about half of them are more experience transient periods of anxiety, of fear. Uh, even some people feel a little panicky at times. And so part of what we do is create a set and setting so that they have a bond of trust and safety and rapport with their therapists who are in the room with them. And they're in a beautiful setting and they're not just dunked into this, right? Like they're, we prepare them and tell them what they might expect and encourage them and to, to, to welcome even difficult feeling states because I think that you can't really have deep healing unless you um, go through some difficult experiences. And so in the community, we have heard about bad, bad trips. Um, we've heard about people who, and I've, I used to work in emergency rooms in New York City. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people who walk into the ER, usually with polysubstance use, but, but all sorts of problems and mental health issues and schizophrenia. But oftentimes people come in having taken too much, uh, too many psychedelics, and um, they didn't have the support or the setting or the intention or the cultural practices to contain that and they needed they needed additional medical care. What we're seeing in these trials is that um, we do not want this to go off the rails right we want the our our society and what we see in indigenous societies, and I think we can learn uh, from both indigenous societies and from the lineages of people doing this thoughtfully in um, underground settings or in retreat settings is that you have to build. Um, humane and human cultural practices around the experience. We know that alcohol is the most dangerous drug that's ever been legal and proved to man and from drunk driving accidents to people nearly killing themselves, you know, literally because of drinking uh, to difficulty with relationships and lost productivity and all sorts of other health problems. 
But what we've done in our culture is actually we've done a lot to minimize those harms of alcohol, right? We have designated drivers. We, you know, we have limits on things. We don't condone problematic drinking. We, we try to help people and have programs to support that. I think that with psychedelics, there are some potential difficulties, including bad trips, but those experiences tend to occur when people are taking psychedelics, uh, when it's not thoughtful, it's not planned, they're alone, they're not with a skilled facilitator. Um, and what we've seen actually in all of these clinical trials, when you look at meta-analyses of the safety, is that we've had thousands of people take psychedelic medicine. And yes, people do have some adverse events, but those tend to be well-resolved within the experience. They don't have to be given drugs to stop the stop the experience and on the whole people tend to be doing better afterward and and it's and it's safe and non-habit forming most most of these drugs classical drugs like psilocybin the more you take it actually over time the less the effects are so there's um and even in preclinical models like animal models like a, a rat in a cage will not self-administer classical psychedelics it's not habit unlike cocaine for example um and so that's that's helpful but i think that we as a uh, as clinicians as researchers as as a society need to be thoughtful about you know what are the practical cultural practices that we can build including group work or um, practicing with integrity having uh, really high quality trainings and uh, and uh, thoughtful ways of administering these medicines both with preparation before and integration afterwards so it's not just something that we're doing on a lark um which uh you know not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that but it it does have a higher risk profile so we need to be really careful and thoughtful right and your research looks uh, at the intersection of psychedelics and ocd in particular i wonder there might be some people watching or listening that uh suffer with ocd and looking for uh, a ray of light so maybe you could share uh from your practice and your experience some success story that has an anecdotal story yeah I, you know i want to really recognize dr ben Kalmendi and the team at, at yale our, our team there um ben you know it's the first time in in um i think almost 40 over 40 years that the national institutes of health have funded a psychedelic trial because it's so potentially promising as a treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder and ocd you know as a psychologist it's notoriously difficult to treat i mean people oftentimes live very functional lives, all their lives with symptoms of having obsessions or problematic um, uh, for them, you know, th things that they want to stop uh, behaviors um, where they're just repeating or counting, for example. And um, I was talking with somebody in our trial and he, um, you know, he was in a relationship, but they, he was really struggling in work. He was struggling in relationships uh, to the extent that he couldn't really leave rooms without doing an entire ritual around counting and returning to the room to flip the light switches back over and over and over again. Um, and what was worse actually were intrusive thoughts, because oftentimes OCD it takes the form of intrusive thoughts that you, things that you don't actually want to do, like intrusive uh, thoughts that you want to like, um, hurt somebody, for example, you're not a violent person, you actually don't want to do this, but it, but you spend all your time um, battling internally. And with some preparation with his therapy team, and with um, the help of a moderate dose of psilocybin, uh, he, he said to me, you know, he had this entire vision of going into his mind and into his history, looking at the effect that his his OCD as he sought it in a possessive way had on his life 
And he, he came out of it just feeling like he had unlocked something important in a very deep way that he had, um, he had sort of like seen all of the things that he was afraid of with his OCD and actually confronted and sat with them in a new way. And he came out of it saying, you know, in the past few weeks, and he, I spoke with him a few months after the experience, I, I'm able, not only am I, it's not like it's everything's gone away. It's not like I'm totally cured. He still has some thoughts when he leaves the room, but um, it's not so insistent. It doesn't sit on top of his head like a monkey, right? It's not something that's driving his internal psychological experience. And what it has allowed for him, what he told me was, I can sit with my partner and I can see her and take her in and be aware of my feelings and her feelings and not have this running preoccupied other stream of thought that I have to check constantly, but I can just be more present with this person that I care so much about and who has been so patient and supportive of me throughout this whole experience. Mm -hmm. And so he's playing guitar more often. He's um, able to, you know, take a step in his career. And, you know, we're seeing it's preliminary, but we're seeing that, that not all people have this benefit, but many people seem to have um, some pretty significant benefits in terms of reductions of the, in terms of their OCD uh, scores on, on, on classic sort of gold standard measures. And um, I'm excited for it. I think it's like really, um, I mean, as a clinician, it's hard to work with somebody who's working so hard in therapy or so hard with conventional medication and is not necessarily making the progress that they want to make and is getting by. It's really moving to see how meaningful, how much meaning there is in this experience for them. Um, and I think it takes a deep dive. I mean, psychedelics like are not, um, they're not easy for people. Uh, and so, you know, it, it takes a lot of courage and bravery actually to go there, I think for a lot of people. If you're enjoying this conversation, I bet you'll love reading my book, Purposeful Empathy, Tapping Our Hidden Superpower for Personal, Organizational and Social Change. We are living in the era of a massive empathy deficit, but humans are wired to care and we can become more empathic with practice. And the more you do, the better you'll feel. Please visit your favorite online retailer and order your copy today. Um, here we go with the central question, I think, for me of this conversation. The other potential uses of psychedelics, like evoking empathy, a love of nature, or change feelings and connections with others. What would you like to say about that? Well, the, the my question for for you and for anyone who's watching or listening is like like what are what are psychedelics for? Like, what exactly are they? The idea that you have a, a molecule, whether it's like a conventional medication or a psychedelic drug medication, it's not like it's like oh well, this is for OCD or like oh yes, this is for PTSD. Um, they have and and we actually had this question of like what even should we call psychedelics? So psychedelic means literally mind manifesting but there's been all some drugs like you mentioned mdma is sometimes called an empathogen meaning it's generating of an empathic or compassionate quality um, sometimes people call them uh, entheogens which is generating the this spirituality or divine within and we have in repeated trials demonstrated that people do seem to become at least by their own self-report more altruistic so in our our trial at NYU, uh, our, the first trial we started, we started a reading group back in 2006. It was, you know, the early days. And we were working with cancer patients. And these people were afraid of 
cancer recurrence. They had had surgeries and radiation and chemo. And we were treating their existential despair. And one of the secondary measures that we put in was a measure of altruism. And, and, um, and people said that they felt more caring and compassionate and had engaged in more pro-social behaviors um, after treatment um, as compared to placebo. And that sort of sparked my curiosity because I was really interested in like, what is, to use the academic stern, like pro-social behavior? Like how, how is it that we can be kinder to each other? There's so much cruelty in the world. There's so much cruelty in the body polity. There's so much cruelty in the wars. Uh, in Ukraine and abroad and, and cruelty at home in our own backyards and homes. Um, and one of the questions that's being looked at, and I think it's actually a problem, which is that it's not fundable, as easily fundable, right? It's like, uh, is how do we increase empathy? Um, or do, are, might psychedelics be helpful? Um, and interestingly, a few different groups have looked at this and there's been um, survey data, basically where people are given um, uh, an, an empathy test, uh, but there's also been clinical trial data with psilocybin um, where, we're, where people are given a test of 40 different um, sort of distressing images, both positive and negative, and they're asked to sort of put themselves in the shoes of the, this, this picture that they're looking at about somebody um, kind of freaking out. Uh, and in this, in this standard test, what we see is that after being given psilocybin, people uh, have higher rates of emotional empathy for for the people in those pictures as compared to placebo, you know, saline or just like a sugar pill. And, you know, it's really hard to measure empathy. You're probably more the expert on this than I am. It's like not, there are like ways of assessing it and measuring it. So you give these tasks and you can ask questionnaires. Um, what I'm finding in qualitative interviews with people, just sitting down with them and talking with them is that they feel... Um, less hardened to the world and more open to the world. And this is consistent with some of the clear data that we have about human personality. So in psychology, there's this idea of ocean, the sort of five, the big, sometimes called the big five. And the big five are the big five uh, domains of human personalities. And so these are five factors. And the ocean is for uh, openness to new experience, the O, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness and then the n in ocean is neuroticism and normally these things are pretty stable like once you become an adult they don't tend to change over time like your 20s 30s 40s 50s 60s you still your, your basic personality structure is different and some people have a greater openness to new experience they're into novelty and some people are like nope i don't want to do that i want to stay in my what's familiar and have the same meal every night for dinner um, what's interesting is that normally when you give people fda approved medication these things don't change. Like it's, you wouldn't expect someone to give a drug and then their basic personality structures would change. But with psychedelics, time and time again, and for the first time ever in a clinical trial, we see that giving people psilocybin therapy changes, increases their openness to new experience. And the the domain of openness to new experiences, you know, might be, a, we might associate it with openness to the experience of others, right? Being open to uh, and curious to others instead of vilifying them and uh, to being um to embracing a, a, a greater empathic response potentially and so um i think that this question has not been rigorously researched because it's expensive and takes a lot of training and time and you have to do a randomized controlled trial but um I, I think it's really fascinating i'm curious for you like what your thoughts are about 
you know, from an empath, from uh, this this question of like, how what is empathy, and how is it that we can drop into deeper empathy? Um, like, what is keeping us from doing that, and how might psychedelics help with that? Because I think that there's um, potentially many different paths for individual people, and it may not be like a one one mechanism um, solution. Well, I asked the rhetorical question, what if our brains on empathy could change the world? Like, I really, I listened to you and I think, okay, there's a lot of therapeutic potential here. But then when you're talking about openness to one another and positive regard to others and a willingness to listen, and then this, you know, the malleability of our neural connections uh, and synaptic connections reforming and creating new connections. Like, what if we listen to each other differently? What if we appreciated each other differently? What, how would that change our society at a mass scale? I think it would have a significant change. It makes me wonder, um, you know, I don't know enough about the Nixon administration and why the war on drugs was, uh, you know, enforced in the first place. But I think about culturally, you know, this whole uh, narrative that you're never good enough, which is, you know, the whole marketing and advertising machinery and social media amplifying, like, you know, you must do this, that, and have this, that, and the other to be full and complete. And I, I've been teaching for 10 years at McGill, more than 10 years now. And the mental health issues that are just, you know, just, and we know this to be true across the board, especially in the COVID years. I've seen it myself in my own classroom where like really intelligent, confident kids also suffer from debilitating anxiety about the future and about their lives. And social media amplifies it because they're just comparing themselves to others. If we didn't have to always, you know, look good to others and, 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 and chase after the almighty dollar if we actually, you know, found, um, uh, reclaim some of the human values that I think that have actually allowed us to evolve as humans, like as a species over the, the many millennia, we, we might, you know, we could transform society. And I, I don't know, that's what comes to mind when I think about this. Um, um, yeah. Human beings are social animals. And we live uh, many, I mean, I live in New York City. I mean, many people are in little tiny apartments by themselves, socially, literally socially isolated. The, you know, the US Surgeon General has called it an epidemic of isolation and loneliness, um, you know, and there were many ways to cope with that, including taking a lot of crystal methamphetamine as I think a lot of, as a gay man, like we see and see in my community of, of gay men and, and men who have sex with men in New York City and other large, um, and around the world, frankly. Um, but you can compensate that by seeking status and money and the next, as you put it, sort of like the sort of beauty economy um, where it's shame inducing messages that you're not enough and you can get, you can be better if you only purchase this solution, if you have this product, if you have these clothes and this makeup and this look and this surgery. And um, I think that because human being, like what we are suffering from in part is an epidemic of disconnection. Um, and so it, um, if we can connect to each other in ways that are um, um, th thoughtful, not just connecting, you know, we don't want to connect um, and reprise abusive or manipulative or undermining relationship. Um, but I think that um, part of what psychedelics may offer, and I don't think that psychedelics are um, 
they're, they're, they're sometimes called nonspecific amplifiers, you know, nonspecific amplifiers of human consciousness and conscious experience. So if you put a lot of love and intention into the space and into the music that's playing and into your relationship as a facilitator with a person and you really care and the person feels seen and cared for and has that congruence of empathic regard and mutual respect, um, if there's a lot of care put into your intentions as a participant for taking the psychedelic and you have a, and then there's a lot of care integrating that afterward, that, that these processes become non-specifically amplified, right? Um, it's possible that the psychedelics are not, you know, intrinsically benevolent helpers, right? They have been used in bad ways. So we've, we know that the CIA used psychedelics in the MK ultra programs, uh, as mind control, you know, trying to uh, both on, on on our own agents and others. We know that psychedelics have been used for the now, in many ways, outlawed or banned practice of conversion therapy, of converting uh, sexual and gender minority people um, into being straight people, uh, including, um, you know, this is like a common practice that's been outlawed. If you're, if you're, um, uh, if you're a lesbian trying to have, you know, give them psychedelics to, uh, as part of an intentional treatment to, to make them straight. This is well documented. And so I don't think that with psychedelics that there's just like some easy road for a more connected world, but um, it invites, um, it is serious business taking psychedelic medicine. And most facilitators, if they have an experiential training component where they themselves had the opportunity to take the medicine, as I was given with MDMA with um, in the in the trials to treat trauma, you know how serious it is. And so there's there, the stakes seem higher. And instead of just kind of walking into your doctor's office and filling out a form and not really, you know, having the person sitting across from you like typing into the EMR all the data and having no connection and then you leave the you leave the office with like a script or maybe you know some sort of plan but there's the plan is sort of like you know totally stereotyped in the sense that it's like not thoughtful or really about you at all everything is generic and nothing is connected like that experience is I think profoundly shaming I think it reprises um, neglect uh, I think it reprises some of the you know there might be some specific pragmatic efficiencies in it but it's not humane um and so what if our practices as clinicians were more humane um i think that sometimes it means they're more expensive or they take longer um and in fact we see that with psychedelic medicine that they, you know these are intensive interventions it's it's not like oh, i'm just going to prescribe you something and then come back in six weeks uh, uh, but, you know, from a pharmacoeconomic modeling perspective, if the benefit is great enough, it actually makes sense to invest, invest our social resources in um, something that's a little bit more thoroughgoing. And so that's what I'm, I, I, I'm, I think that's where this is heading. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know how you as a person um, have, I mean, this is presuming a change, so uh debunk that uh if if I'm, I'm making a false assumption but given the research that you've done and given how much time you've invested in this space how have you as a human being changed the way you see humanity and the world um maybe this enters a little bit into the spiritual domain because you mentioned earlier that there is this spiritual element to the psychedelic uh experience so i, I wonder yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, like what sort of um, 
I sometimes joke like what sort of drag do, do I want to put on if I'm speaking to a room full of doctors at a grand rounds you know I sort of put the tie on and button up and I can present formally but I you know the, this question of our spiritual lives our soulful embodied existences on on earth I mean we've seen um you know that's uh oftentimes dismissed uh, but we know actually that that's the data shows us it's related and correlated to people's experience of making meaning in their lives and correlated with better health and less morbidity and less mortality. So we know that these things are are related. With psychedelics, I in talking with people, you know, there there are. I, let me lay it out this way. There, I've seen like four different types of mystical type experiences. You know, people sometimes have an experience of reality that just is so profound and it's like the void. It's like they, they've like transcended all concepts. And, and it's really like a traditional idea of like what it might be to have in Advaita Vedanta an experience that um, is, is, or in, to use Christian terminology, the, the, an experience that sur, surpasses, uh, surpasses, <laughs> excuse me, all, all understanding. Um, and, but, but there's also people have, uh, they, they meet um, gods and angels and guiding spirits. I mean, many people that I'm talking to on First Avenue at Bellevue Hospital in New York City are like, you know, they're working class professionals, they're not spiritualists, they're not like hippies. And many of them said that they were, they in their vision met with um, uh, deceased relatives, like grandparents, god godparents, um, their father who died, um, and were were had transmissions of wisdom, or received a kiss on the cheek or a hug from a deceased person in their lives. They were they had uh, one person described how his father became like a guiding spirit, um, like a like Virgil leading Dante through this grand vision. And when people take DMT, Johns Hopkins research suggests that what's interesting is like if you were to ask what is what does DMT do for the only thing that we know, I mean, one of the things that we know for sure is that more people who are agnostic or self identify as agnostic or atheist going in, less of them identify as agnostic or atheist coming out because they have experiences of entities or gods or encounters that don't add up in our everyday ruckamuck Monday through Friday kind of like uh, zoom box lives and um, people also have mystical experiences of nature and we see this in the paintings of Pablo Amaringo and ayahuasca shamanism from the Amazon basin but we also see this in you know U.S. cities where people who are in cities like have visions of uh, cheetahs and snakes and two-headed cows and sort of are in nature have a sense that like nature is alive in a way that's not just like there's sap flowing through the tree but there's like there's like an imminence to the experience of reality and they take that and we see that with greater nature relatedness potentially as reported by people who take psychedelics um Three. and then the <laughs> yeah and then four lastly is just like like how do you even define soulfulness like as a queer person one of the things that i think about is um 
you know, like queer spirituality is about reclaiming the, like reclaiming like the political body. Like we're actually all in this together. Um, as the Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams says, my liberation is bound up with your liberation. I can't just sit on a mat alone for 20 years. Like we have to like do this together. We, the, the actual idea of separation in that lineage is that we aren't disconnected. Like we actually are like literally in this and we have to do this together. And so how can we join hands and join forces um, to reclaim connection to each other? And in, I think to do that, we have to reconnect with our more deeper selves, not the small self, but a deeper understanding of who we really are. And that may transcend um, our personal biographies. Um, at least it does for many people who take these medicines. And um, you don't have to believe in any of that for these things to potentially be effective, but many people, um, it sort of opens the lid on a different frame for understanding what's happening. And I love the fact that you keep returning to the word, these medicines, um, which I'm sure is intentional. And I think I'm going to start to adopt. Um, that has been, I could listen to you for hours and I'm sure the people who are watching and listening are feeling the same way. And I should say to all those folks that I have, um, it, it, um, it struck me, I really mean this sincerely when I say this, it struck me our communication by email, your use of exclamation marks and your signing off as warmly, like you really, I don't know, there's something about you. And I wonder the extent to which you've been exposed to all of this that is kind of like seeped into your way of being, or if you would have been that way, even if you were an accountant, I don't know, but there's something about you that is generous of spirit and authentic and giving and, and, and generous. And I just want to I just want to uh, acknowledge that. That's that's very that's very kind of you to say that. And I I'm having the experience in talking with you that you're asking questions from a place of real sincere curiosity. And I'm I'm I, I it's no wonder your desk your guests can talk about empathy in a more empathic and connected <laughs> connected way. So thanks for <laughs> thanks for having beautiful, me. Beautiful. All right, we're in a love fest here, guys. Last question. I know that uh, we're we're running out of time, and I love asking this question of all my guests at the end, which is, can you think of a time in your life where someone uh, extended empathy in a purposeful way and what that meant for you? Yeah, yeah, I can. I, um... you know, when you're young, you just don't know what you don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's true when you're older too, but I was, I was a kid in college and I was going through the worst experience. I, I have felt the falling out with friends, getting in trouble with the school, feeling a sense of spiritual loss. And I found myself, I didn't have a place to live. And, um, you know, I was going to be okay, but I was, I was, I felt cut off. And a, a friend of mine said, you can come and stay in my dorm room. He was an RA uh, and sleep on my floor for as long as you need. And he like rolled out a mat for me and a blanket. And um, I had felt really, there was a lot going on for me then that I don't necessarily need to get into now, but he really like looked at me in the eye and said, I, st stay with me, it's okay. Uh, and I recuperated there and felt um, that, you know, obviously there was letting me stay, but just like having somebody who I knew cared about me, see me, and um 
feel what I was going through and, and said, we, we're, we're in this together and, and reach out that hand um, was an inflection point for me and really helped, really helped me. And I, uh, I feel really grateful to him. Um, his name is Tony Garcia. So if he's out there in the world, he's, he, he, he knows what he did. I really appreciate it. Well, we thank Tony. And I'm sure that you are now paying it forward. I can only imagine the benefit that your patients in your trials and in your practice uh, get from you. Alex, thank you so much for sharing all your expertise and your storytelling capacity on this really important conversation about the potential of psychedelics for healing in our world and the connection it has to our capacity to grow empathy. Thank you. Thank you, Anita. Take care. We'll see you next week at Purposeful Empathy. Thank you for watching another episode of Purposeful Empathy. Remember, this show is dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from across the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. If you want to get involved, share this video, subscribe to this channel. See you next week. Thank you so much.